I'm Ben Davies, and this is The Clear Money Mindset. So the important thing to keep in mind, and this is one of the biggest reasons I use when people ask me, well, why do I need to make a will? Um, It's very, very common to have a family member that has a disability because it can be anything from substance abuse up to, you know, multiple sclerosis. There's all, there's a whole range of things that could happen. Welcome to the Clear Money Mindset, providing you with help and tips to manage your money in a clear and intentional way. I'm your host and financial advisor, Ben Davies. At Davies Financial Sterling Mutuals, we want to provide you with meaningful tips to help you with your money. Well, if you're raising a child with disabilities, you have a unique set of challenges many parents don't have or understand. One of those challenges is planning for the future of your child, especially planning for the day that you're not there. Today, we have Sebastian Smarans back on the podcast. He is a lawyer from Kingsville, Ontario. Today, we will be chatting about the planning parents can do for children with disabilities, as well as some planning business partners can do to protect the owners of a company in the event a partner becomes disabled. There's a lot of great content in this interview. We hope that is helpful for you. Families raising children, that's a tough thing to do on a regular day. Families raising children with disabilities have a unique set of challenges that they face. And like most parents, uh, we want to make sure that our children have every opportunity possible to succeed. Amongst these challenges is planning for their future. And we want to get some insight from a legal perspective on how we can plan for Uh, the future of children who have disabilities. So today we have with us again, Sebastian Schmaranz from McGregor Sims Schmaranz Law Office in wonderful Kingsville, Ontario. Sebastian, thank you for joining us again. Thanks very much for having me again. Welcome. I wanted to start this off with a basic question because uh, the disability, you can't just say you're disabled or self-proclaim it. There's a process. So before we get into kind of how to plan in the event um, for the future of children with disabilities, how does the government of Canada define disabled? What is the process? So there's, so disability touches on a number of different things when we hear that word. So typically speaking, there are several government support programs, uh, for example, ODSP, the Ontario Disability Support Program, and then you've got um, CPP, the Canada Pension Plan, which will kick in in certain circumstances and start paying out your CPP entitlement early, um, only where a medical doctor, so usually your family physician, Uh, diagnoses you with a recognized disability and provides uh, an opinion as to what percent you are disabled. Um, The government, uh, CRA, and the various provincial and federal ministries have a revolving list of conditions that they recognize as a recognized disability illness that if you are diagnosed with one would provide you with some degree of entitlement to receive various amounts of government financial support and assistance as a disabled person. Okay, and from what from the limited amount that we've seen this there's there's a lot there's a lot of recognition too for like um just developmental delay or, or learning impairments that kind of thing where the government has come along and said okay 
um, without getting into the specifics that like we want to support uh, people with these issues, which is which is great. And it's it's a nice thing to live in a country that cares about those kinds of things and has a structure to take care of them. Um, so what would you say, Sebastian, are some of the unique legal challenges that individuals face when they're caring for loved ones with a disability? So there's two main areas where we want to ensure that we have some sort of a consultation with a lawyer in terms of two basic areas. Uh, we want to look at estate planning. So I'm the parent of a disabled child and I want to ensure that I leave something for them in my estate. Yeah. Uh, then we want to look at things like power of attorney documents. So depending on the extent of a child's disability, uh, up until the age of 18, generally speaking, someone's uh, biological parent and or legal guardian would have the authority to make medical and financial decisions for them. However, once they turn 18, then in order to make decisions for somebody else in a medical and financial capacity, you need to be their power of attorney. Now, there's nothing that says a person with a disability can't make a power of attorney or a will. I have I have many clients with Down syndrome. I have many clients with other types of disabilities that are still very high functioning. And sure. as long as they can understand the basics of the nature of what they are doing, i.e., do you trust so-and-so to make decisions for you? If so, by signing this paper, it allows so-and-so to make decisions for you. If, if I or another legal practitioner feel comfortable that the person understands the nature of what they're doing, then there's no issue there. The issue becomes if you have a severely disabled child, that turns 18 and becomes a legal adult. In order to be able to make decisions for that child going forward, you need to reach out to the Office of the Public Guardian and Trustee, which is a provincial ministry. Their okay. job is to be the guardians, literally, of yeah. people who in olden days would have been known as wards of the state, i.e. Uh, people who are not capable of making decisions for themselves in any capacity, it is that ministry's job to look out for them. What you would do is, Typically, the primary caregiver or the parents or the family member or whoever is going to be the go-to person will usually make an application to the court and put the Office of the Public Guardian and Trustee on notice. The Office of the Public Guardian and Trustee has final say in determining who will be appointed to be their legal guardian for the remainder of their life. The Office of the Public Guardian and Trustee has the right to re-examine that appointment at any point in the future and okay. deem whether the person who's been appointed has the capacity to continue acting in the best interests of that person now so do they check up on that just a question out of curiosity it's it's similar it's similar in many ways to how uh, how cas deals with when we have when we have you know allegations of of improper parenting or child mistreatment um okay. it also allows any member of the public or any person who fears or worries for the safety or well-being of someone or feels they're being mistreated or 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 scammed by their by their guardian to make a complaint to the office of the public guardian and they will investigate they take it very seriously they're i deal with them very frequently because they frequently get called in when i deal with an estate file where we have money that has been left to a minor so okay. if there's money that's left to a minor someone under the age of 18 then usually so there's there's two wings to that to that ministry one is the office of the public guardian and trustee and the other one's called the office of the children's lawyer so they have an obligation to ensure that the inheritance that is being left to a minor is properly protected and taken care of until such time as they turn 18 and they can receive the money. So just on the power of attorney question, so let's say um, 
because I imagine this would apply the same if somebody's older as well, because a lot of people think, um, uh, well, I'm the power, I'm listed as power of attorney, so I can go out and act on behalf of the client. So if a, if an, let's say somebody turns 18, they're able to make decisions, assign their own power of attorney. Um, what has to happen, uh, meaning, does that document have to leave your office, Sebastian, and given to someone, or um, is it enacted right away, or can the power of attorney be there, and then the that adult later on decide, okay, I want to activate this thing? How does that work? So really, a power of attorney, a broad power of attorney, generally speaking, comes into effect the moment that you sign it, which means at any point, the person named in that document could step in and start making decisions for you. Um, you can make limited ones. So for example, if, um, and I frequently have this, you have a sweet married couple in their 50s or 60s, and it's time for the first hip or knee replacement surgery, and it's going to be a major procedure, or we have to have heart surgery, and we're a little bit worried that, um, you know, husband might not be capable of making decisions for a period of time while he's recovering. We sometimes right. do what's called a limited power of attorney. So a limited power of attorney would be, you know, for the next month or two, I have full authority to make decisions for so-and-so, or um, there's snowbirds and they live in Arizona for six months every year, and they just want their kids to be able to pay their taxes and deal with their day-to-day -day Canadian banking while they're gone. So every year they sign a, a power of attorney for property that has a six-month duration, um, okay. which you can do. Generally speaking, though, the power of attorney documents you sign 99.99% of the time with a lawyer are broad in scope, which means you could use them at any time. So typically what I would recommend is classic example, you have a, you have a, you know, a moderate to high functioning child with Down syndrome who turns 18, who's managed to obtain some sort of a job or is doing some sort of further schooling or is volunteering or doing something in the community and just needs assistance with the basics of day-to-day -day banking and paying bills and things like that. What we do is, you know, they, they make the power of attorney. I usually like to keep one original copy at my office so that we don't lose one. And then mm -hmm. I make additional originals or I make notarial copies and we take those to the various banks or financial institutions and we make sure that they have a copy and then we make sure that they have meetings with the people who are named in these documents so they have ID and they know that the mother is actually the mother and not just somebody pretending to be the mother because unfortunately it is the case that disabled persons are very likely, more likely than most of the population aside from elderly people to be scammed, right? Because yeah. a lot of them um, have difficulty uh seeing through someone who's clearly trying to manipulate them right yeah so yep. usually what i recommend is okay you have a child they've turned 18 they have a disability they have capacity to make a power of attorney great why don't we schedule meetings with all of their banks and get their bank accounts opened up and make sure that the bankers know who you are and know who your child is and have copies of photo id on file so that there's no question of any fraudulent activity happening we usually try to recommend they don't have online banking um that you know okay. depending on again there's some people so, with disabilities that are getting... so mild that they can do all their banking, but maybe they have chronic migraines that pop up. And every now and again, it's convenient for mom to go to the bank and do the banking. But we try so to the make the power sure that... of attorney doesn't stop. I'm just asking a basic question, not to be too granular, but the person, the individual can make their own decisions and the power of attorney can at the same time. So they're not, in a sense, signing their life away, for lack of a better term. They're bringing someone on board to help. You're not signing your life away. So the, the important thing to note is just because you've named someone as your power of attorney doesn't mean you no longer have any control over your life. It means that you've okay. empowered someone else to also make decisions for you. Yep. Now, 
if after making that power of attorney, something happens to you such that you no longer have any capacity to make decisions for yourself, where this is when we talk about capacity assessments or capacity hearings, and there yep. is, a, is a legal regulatory function in the province of Ontario where there's usually two or three doctors and it's a board and they have to assess you. If it gets bad enough, i.e. severe dementia or a brain injury or really you know, severe psychiatric injury or really severe, severe disability that gets worse over time, they may eventually say, no, this, this person no longer has any capacity to make decisions at all, which is again why I say, as long as someone has capacity, getting them to make a power of attorney is great because if that capacity is gone one day, then they will never be able to make a will or a power of attorney ever again because they no longer have capacity to make decisions for themselves. Okay. There's one more question I have there, but I'm going to move on because it's a bit too too small. Um, what about special considerations just for... So I'm I'm a parent. Let's say I have a child who has a disability. Um, I'm making my will. I'm doing my estate plan. Are there are there things I should be considering that are different than a regular will um, if I'm trying to plan for what happens to all my stuff when it goes to kids, different things like that? So the important thing to keep in mind, and this is one of the biggest reasons I use when people ask me, well, why do I need to make a will? Um, it's very, very common to have a family member that has a disability. Because it can be anything from substance abuse up to, you know, multiple sclerosis. There's all there's a whole range of things that could happen. Now, the reason why estate planning is so important in this case is any government financial support you receive is based upon one, you have been diagnosed with a recognized disability. Right. And two, you do not earn income or you earn very minimal income because of the nature of your disability that either prevents you from working or prevents you from working more than a few hours a week. Now, they these ratios change all the time, but the important thing to know is the following. If mom and dad have a million dollar estate, which isn't unusual to see in today's world with what you know home values are, and you have a decent sized you know, RSP and investment portfolio and two cars, and yep. they both die, and all of that gets liquidated. And let's say we have two children and one whom is disabled and one who is not. And they're each going to receive, for the sake of simplicity, $500,000 each. Most provincial and federal and regional government authorities that provide financial assistance or any other kind of assistance to people with disabilities view an inheritance as income. And that's something I want your listeners to have sink in. It is viewed as income. It is viewed as though they made $500,000 that year. Hmm. And the so issue all, your, all of your support is gone that year. Exactly. And it might not just be gone that year. So they might spread it out over several years. And now your child may be ineligible for any government assistance at all for an extended period of time, which is very difficult. So yeah, especially like I'm just going to paint this picture for listeners like if you pass away, you have a child with disability in their 20s, even if you left them a half a million dollars, like that's not getting them very far. So let's say that that's really their retirement for lack of like for planning purposes. You don't want to be drawing that down. So um, 
what you're saying is you you're basically by giving it to them you could be forcing their hand into pulling that money out that you intended to be for later on in their life assuming that the government supports are going to be there while they were younger and now they're in a position where they got to draw down what you had hoped would be their essentially retirement savings exactly and so the mechanism that that we've created that deals with that is something called a henson trust and a lot the word gets tossed around a lot a lot of financial advisors and bankers and lawyers and other people who talk about this kind of thing use this term yep. it's really not that complicated all it is is we just put some language in your will that says you know my estate i divide my estate equally between my two children and then when we get to the section that deals with your disabled child the language essentially says that the money is to be administered by your estate trustee and it is my intention that that money never essentially becomes the property of my disabled child. So it essentially means your disabled child is now the beneficiary of a trust. And the simplest way of saying it is, there is a pool of money that has been set aside for you, for your benefit, that you have no ownership in and no control over, that is administered to you by someone that mom and dad picked in their will. And it's got, a, it's got an expiry period and it runs for a certain period of time. But essentially what it means is it allows for a lengthy period of time in which we could take that money and we could invest it or we could put it in a GIC or we could put it in any other type of vehicle or we could do any other type of investment by property, do any type of a thing that we think would stretch that money for a longer period of time and sure. provide value to that disabled child for their benefit without it legally becoming their money. So then what happens um, when the money's pulled out in chunks? Is it seen as a gift, which wouldn't be taxable? How does the government look at it differently than if there's $500,000 and they pulled that out in pieces when they were younger? So it's not so much that the money's taxable, because generally speaking, when we deal with an estate and we deal with an inheritance, the estate pays the taxes. The beneficiaries receive the money tax-free because the tax has already been paid. Now, yeah, let's rephrase that to income, not yes. taxable. So, so the money they receive as by way of, of the Henson Trust, you could, the easiest way to describe it is it is essentially a gift. Um, okay. It's You have a benefactor who is buying things for you or making investments on your behalf that will benefit you, but you really have no say in what happens and you have no control over it. And that's an important distinction. And as long as that loophole still exists, and as long as this, this framework still exists for a Henson Trust, the uh, federal, provincial, and regional governments are very happy to say, yeah, we don't consider that income. You can still apply for your full ODSP or your early disability CPP and receive all your payments because this is not income. And, um, and it would allow, again, for them really to benefit from their inheritance far more than if we just said, I leave everything 50-50 to my two kids. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. And there's there's also... On our end of the business, there's the product launch a while back now called the Registered Disability Savings Plan, which is massive. It's a great way for um, parents or really um, there's not much of a limit on who can put the put money into this kind of a plan. Um, you can only put 200000 in altogether. But the thing that's amazing about it is, um, again, without getting too granular, there's government grants that go into this thing. Um, they total 70,000 in the lifetime of the plan if you reach them all. And then there's additional uh, savings bond. It's kind of like a very much 
same terminology-ish as an RESP. There's the savings grant, savings bonds, two are different. Um, some are income-driven. But essentially, around $90,000 of government money could go into this thing, and you're really looking at $1,500 a year in contribution turns into the government adding 35, which is crazy, um, which is great. Again, it's awesome to be in a system where that's that's true um, and those things are provided. Um, Tax-free earn, tax earnings, um, they accumulate tax-free. It's very much like an RRSP when you take it out. And um, a really cool feature, without getting into all of the stuff here is um, it is possible for um, for a parent to transition RRSP money into this thing on death, um, which is another advantage. So people can keep that in mind as as a tool. If if you have somebody on ODSP, they qualify for the RDSP, and it really is free government money that's intended to help them later in life. They can start taking it out at fifty five. It's a great way and kind of like that trust in a way. The government doesn't look at this pool of money to affect your uh, your government support system. So really important for people to take advantage of those two things. Henson Trust, RDSP are two great programs that have been built by the by our, our system here to make sure that um, individuals with disabilities are taken care of and there's a means to do it in a very efficient way and uh, the government wants to come alongside and help you do that which is is great um, the one thing I'd want to add on that that's from the legal perspective um, some of your listeners may not have ever heard of this before and may have a disabled child or family member and uh, go to apply and realize, you know, they might have been diagnosed five or 10 years ago and they've missed out on all of those years of contributions. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've met and I've come across, it's a, a bit of a niche area, but there's a handful of lawyers and paralegals who actually um, dispute your contribution period with the federal government. And they have some degree of success in allowing you to retroactively contribute. So they they will frequently allow up to a certain number of years for yeah, you to tens, go back and dump a lot of the money most. in to make up for missed time. And that's it's one of the really cool things about this program. It's really unique and, and very few people know about it. And it really is, it's arguably like a defined contribution RRSP where the government ponies up a certain amount to match what you've put in, if not go above and beyond, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah and unlike say like the RESP for your kid's education, if you started it late in life, you can't go back and capture 10 years of unused grant and bond like you just can't this one you can and um we've seen that a lot too where a client comes in they've got a paper saying yeah this this actually went back eight years and then that when you open up the rdsp you can capture all of that grant and bond um going back that eight years which is is huge um couple of other questions for you um who cares for someone when parents of a disabled child pass away and and how is that set up is that through a typical will or is there a special process for this and so that is a very i i i come across this relatively frequently i have i have aging parents who have adult disabled children at home 
Um, these are things where you want to look at. Do we want to put them in a care home of some kind? Are they self-sufficient enough that they can continue living in the family home after we pass? Um, are there community programs we can sign them up for? Um, in terms of the home, so an interesting thing to point out is, and I get asked this question a lot, can people on government support own a home? Um, yes, they absolutely can, as long as it's their primary residence. So okay. frequently I'll see wills where they they do one of two things. They either actually leave the home to the child or they, again, it becomes part of the Henson Trust. And the Henson Trust says, my child shall be permitted to live in my home for the remainder of their life. And the money that they've received from the estate uh, shall go towards maintenance and upkeep and utilities and to ensure that they receive whatever services or care they need while they are in the home. And then it's yep. the estate trustee's job to continue dealing with that up until the, the assets of the estate are depleted. So this this is a bit of a sidebar question, but what what happens to the Henson Trust when the individual with a disability passes away? Is that does it fall under their will, or does the Henson Trust itself, in a sense, have a will of its own? So it depends on drafting. Um, generally speaking, one of two things will happen that terminate a Henson Trust. The Henson Trust has a time limit. Once that time li limit expires, then the money must be distributed. So it can't just okay. be held by the trustee forever. Although the sneaky way of getting around that is right before the expiry, the tr if we're talking large sums of money here, the, the average estate, this won't matter. But let's say we've set aside several million dollars for a disabled child. Prior to the expiry of the Henson Trust, the estate trustee could always set up another trust for the benefit of that child and restart the clock. Now, generally speaking, two things happen. The Henson Trust expires, timeline runs out, which means whatever money's left has to be paid out, or the child who's subject to the Henson Trust dies. Now. It depends. Since technically they did not inherit the money, it means right. that that Henson Trust now lapses and gets redistributed based on the instructions in the will of the parent who left them the Henson Trust. Because it's not their inheritance. They're just the beneficiary of some sort of a trust. So once the beneficiary dies, they can't leave the benefit of that trust to someone else. That Essentially, that trust now has to be wound up. And it has to be redistributed based on whatever other clauses are in that will for dealing with essentially remainders. So does that does that mean that the estate of that initial deceased person stays open or does that whole time or does it kind of close and reopen? So essentially the estate, it means realistically, if you set up one of these things, your estate will remain open more or less for that entire period of time. Um, okay. I mean, the main the main duties of the estate will be dealt with to a certain extent, but then there will be a pool of money that gets set aside and it will be the estate trustee's job for the remainder of the timeline of that trust or until the beneficiary of that trust dies to keep administering that money, which means every year we got to file taxes and we got to pay taxes on that money. We have to move yeah. that money around. We have to do things with that money. We have to pay monies out to the beneficiary. All of those things become a full-time job. So yeah. it is the only thing I would suggest is if you have a child that is disabled to any extent where you think that this is a product that's good for you and you are of a medium to high net worth where we're talking about there will be a decent amount of money that will be paid out for a period of time, think long and hard about who you want to name as the estate trustee for your will because that person will need to have a certain amount of sophistication and skill to essentially become the gatekeeper of this giant pool of money, right? So yeah. if you have two kids and they both hate each other, then maybe it's not a good idea to name non-disabled child as the estate trustee for a disabled child, because that right. might lead to some resentment over a long period of time. 
Or yeah. maybe we appoint them jointly with a financial advisor or an accountant or a lawyer or a trusted family friend or someone who you know is decently good with money and is dispassionate about the whole thing and knows that it's a job and we have to carry out the instructions in this trust. And yeah. it might become easier. Okay. Now, this leads to another question, which is, it seems kind of a bad question to ask, but just dealing with money in the first place, there's no sense lying about the fact that when there's a bunch of money on the table, when parents pass away, people change. Um, what I envision in something like this, you have all of this set up and you've taken all this care to make sure the child with the disability is taken care of. I can't imagine there not being a case where some of the other kids look around and say, well, geez, so much money has gone to um, our sister and we've gotten so much less because of that. How do you how do you account for that in in when in the estate planning process when you're drafting the will in the first place? Do you kind of say to those kids like, listen, like. Be happy that you're not on ODSP and and deal with it. Or um, is it smart to try to mitigate that in some way? Like, what do you do when you're making those plans? So we got to start with this stereotypically cheesy lawyer joke when we're talking about how people change when people die. So the joke, the, the, the saying goes, where there's a will, there's a way. For estate lawyers, we say where there's a will, there's probably a lawsuit. So <laughs> the way we think about it or the way I try to think about it is it, it just comes down really to net worth and it comes down to family dynamics. And you just have to be honest with yourself. I have a lot of parents that come in and meet with me that talk to me for 30, 40 minutes about how much their kids don't get along and how one's a drug addict and the other one has this problem and the other one doesn't talk to me. And But they still insist that we're going to name all of them as estate trustees and somehow we magically think they're all going to get along and make good decisions. Yeah. I think that's hopelessly naive and very wishful thinking. Now, I can't sure. say that to my client because then I wouldn't have any clients. But I do gently try to push them towards saying, Maybe we don't want a family member doing this. Maybe right. we can find someone else we trust and put them in this position and have them be appointed essentially as a professional estate trustee, and it's their job to deal with this. And, and the way I deal with that is, so frequently, or not all the time, but every now and again, I get asked to act as an estate trustee for someone. So I'll have a client come in, maybe all their family lives overseas, or they don't have one nearby, or they're not married, or they're widowed, and they don't have any kids and they don't know who's gonna be responsible for dealing with all of this stuff. So I say, look, I'm happy if you want me to and you feel comfortable with me to act as a professional estate trustee for you. You can name me as your estate trustee and you can leave stuff to six charities and nine friends and whatever. And my job will be to liquidate everything, pay the taxes, apply for probate and divvy everything yeah. up. Now, yeah. before you agree to do that, and I would suggest this to anyone where you're thinking of asking someone who is not a family member, so a trusted friend or business advisor or professional, especially when the person you're going to name doesn't inherit anything from the will. So really, they're just being a professional estate trustee. Yep. We have them sign a compensation agreement. So what I do is we negotiate out what I'm going to be paid for my fees for long after their debt. Because what we do is we have them, we review that, we negotiate it. If they're happy with it, they sign everything. It gets put in the envelope with their will. And we put a clause in their will that says... My estate trustee and, you know, let's say Sebastian Schmorans will be paid in accordance with the compensation agreement that I've made and signed this date of blah, 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 2022. And it doesn't have to be a lawyer. It can be anyone as long as they're over the age of 18 and they're not a bankrupt and they don't have any, you know, uh, 
uh, disability of any kind, such that they don't have capacity to, to make decisions. Right. So those are usually options where I would say, look, if you, if you have a really dysfunctional family, or if we're talking really large sums of money where there's a lot of temptation to sue, you really want to think about, do we want to hire a professional estate trustee? I, and then the next level up from that, as you might know, are trust companies. So you right. could, every major bank has a trust division and their job is to help manage the funds of very wealthy account holders who are dead. So now is, that, is that ideal or is there a certain net worth where, because I, I would imagine there is an advantage to having somebody who knew the parents. So it's to me, and I, I've, there are people within banks who usually are the, the bank associated financial advisors who do a very good job of selling clients on this, on trust companies. Yeah. Yep. I don't really think they need them unless, okay. unless you have a very high net worth, you have assets spread out all over Canada or all over the world, you own really complex investments or run businesses or operate businesses, you own multiple properties, in which case they're absolutely worth the money. They cost a lot of money. They charge a lot of money for to, to provide the services that they provide. But it's a well-oiled machine, and they do it very well. The problem is I see a lot of people who have a net worth of like less than $2 million bucks being told that they need to appoint a trust company to be their estate trustee. And okay. honestly, and I don't mean to say – I don't mean to be pessimistic, but I mean it's kind of optimistic to assume you're still going to be worth $2 million bucks when you die. I mean if you do it right, you've spent all the money by the time you die, and it should be a reasonable to moderate-sized estate. Like some of these trust companies charge 6% for every penny that comes in and 6% for every penny that comes out, right? So okay. the bills aren't small. Now, sure. they provide fantastic service, so it's not a question that the service isn't great, but in my opinion – it's like owning a Toyota Corolla and paying to have a chauffeur drive you around in it every day. Like, <laughs> will it be fantastic? Absolutely. But that's not really what a chauffeur was designed for. And, yeah. I, you know, that's the kind of thing you get an Uber X for. So, like, my, my whole point being trust companies are great and they're a great option. They make a lot of sense where you're a high net worth person who has a very complex asset picture and lots of complex liabilities and, you know, you're a big deal. If you're not a big deal and you just have a somewhat dysfunctional family, pick a good friend or a, or a family member or a professional who you trust. And most of us will, you know, who are insured and I'm, I'm allowed to be a fiduciary. It's one of the my, my magic powers as a lawyer. Um, if, if I trust you and I, I think it's a good match, then we sit down and we iron out a compensation agreement. I can promise you. I don't charge anywhere close to what a trust company charges and that gets signed and we put it in your will. And then beautiful thing yeah. is then even if all the kids hate each other and they're all fighting, it's there in black and white at the end. And it says, look, mom and dad decided they were going to hire Sebastian to do this. And here's how much Sebastian's going to be paid. And Sebastian doesn't care how unhappy you guys are. His job is liquidate everything, divvy it up. Everybody sign the releases. If you want to get your money, sign this release and we're done. Right. And that way there's no emotion in it. And there's no, no, nobody's feelings get hurt. Nobody has to worry that they're, you know, disrespecting someone because it's a, it's a very detached professional process. Yeah. Which it, in some cases, like, like you're saying, it needs to be like your parents made a will for a reason, not for you to argue about it after. Um, I want to shift gears for a second and just, and talk about adults with disabilities. This happens for various amount of reasons. Could be work-related, could be mental health related, could be a thousand things. Um, probably more than a thousand. I don't want to pin myself down there on a number. Um, but 
we've run into this a few times and I'm sure you've run into it more than we have is, is businesses that have a business owner or a key person that winds up becoming disabled. Um, I want to go through a couple of areas just to ask you a high level on this, but maybe we'll start with a partnership just to, to get a picture of that. Um, what happens when a partner becomes disabled and now we have this business that's worth something, unfortunately, like in small businesses, owners are usually doing a lot of work and they're, they're usually the owner and the key person, right? Like they're integral to the business. So, um, what are some considerations there that, that you see from a legal perspective that a business should prepare itself for? So what we look at, so let's say you have a corporation and you have multiple partners. So you run whatever, you run a, a real estate brokerage and it's uh, and you, you incorporate it and you have two or three main partners and you're the main brokers of record. And you have a bunch of agents that sell underneath you and you own it one third, one third, one third or any other split. Come up with whatever split you like. The issue, the issue arises, do we need a shareholders agreement? Shareholders agreement is usually known as a shareholders agreement or a buy-sell agreement or a shotgun yep. clause, all that fancy terminology. All it really is, is document that the three owners or the two owners or the 10 owners of the business sign that says, we all agree that we will play by the following rules as we grow this business together. We don't wanna leave anything to chance, we don't want anyone to have to hire lawyers and fight about how much my shares are worth or all that kind of stuff later on. Let's come up with a bunch of rules and a bunch of formulas now, and we all agree to be bound by it forever and ever, amen, unless all of us unanimously agree to change it at some point in the future. So okay. we have that thing. So your main partner comes into work one day and smells burnt toast and can't feel the left side of their face and suffers a massive stroke, which is a terrible thing, and it can happen very frequently. It's a brutal yeah. thing, and some people recover, many people don't. And they suffer a stroke to such a capacity that they now are mentally impaired and they are no longer capable in any way, shape or form of running a business. So problem is this, if you didn't have a shareholders agreement, and now means that one third of your business is owned by someone who cannot contribute to it in any way, shape or form. So how do we, A, buy this person out and B, sure. transition him or her out of ownership? because and I'm not, not saying this to sound mean, it's inefficient and they are in a sense in the way. So either we need to bring in a new investor or a new partner, or we need to restructure or we need to make certain decisions. And this is especially dangerous where the person who becomes disabled is a majority owner in a business, which is terrifying. So let's say the senior broker of record who's 75 and loves cigars and red meat and owns you know two thirds of the business. And then there's two other partners who share the other third has a massive stroke and now can't make decisions. And he's the only guy with check signing authority and he's the one with the majority vote you literally grind to a halt, right? Right. So yep. if you didn't have a shareholders agreement, what happens? A bunch of lawyers go to court and we hire a bunch of forensic accountants who make a very, very nice living evaluating businesses. And we fight about what everything's worth and we get lots of orders and eventually, hopefully a judge decides that the other two guys can buy the big guy out and move on. The problem is yep. what happens if you've torpedoed your business during that period of time, because that might take three years, you've lost all your clients and the business is now worthless. The solution is, Almost every single shareholders agreement I've ever drafted or read has two main clauses in it. Aside from your classic buy-sell, we don't agree, agree anymore and one of us wants to buy the other. The two main ones are what happens if somebody dies and what happens right. if somebody becomes disabled. So frequently in a shareholders agreement, it will say that if one of the signatories to this agreement 
becomes disabled for a period of longer than in certain days. So it can be 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, one year, half a year, whatever you want, 10 days. Then the remaining shareholders have the right to buy them out. And when it says to buy them out, the other reason why we make a shareholders agreement is it usually has a clause in it that comes up with a formula of how we calculate the value of those shares every year so that we don't yeah, have to not, argue about what we're you getting. You don't have to argue about what the business is worth. Everybody exactly. knows. And frequently, and, and, and investment and insurance advisors will advise on this, frequently it's valuable for corporations to buy life, corporate life and corporate disability policies just for this reason where the premiums are paid with corporate dollars so that when the two-thirds partner has his stroke, we can kick in the disability insurance policy and that corporate cash will actually be used to buy him out. And those are really valuable mechanisms that allow continuity of flow in a business. It's the well, same that's why we do it for death. Death is the same thing. Upon death, the surviving partners have the right to say, we're going to buy out dead guy for the value of that we've agreed in this formula. Yeah, because yeah, a lot of a lot of companies don't just have the money hanging around to pay off. Like it may be sitting, you may be sitting in the value of your business, i.e. it's equipment on the floor, it's the building you're in, the office you're sitting in, the product you're selling. Um, I was telling you this in the email, uh, have a, a family member, This he's been this way my whole life, but he um, essentially grew from the ground up one of the largest uh, it became, I think, the largest pool supply company in Toronto. Um, got a partner, really unfortunately, diagnosed with MS. And he got paid for the business, but there was no real... So the one thing that seemed to be the problem from a kid looking on the outside in was one, it was kind of a gentleman's agreement, don't worry, I'll take care of you. Um, I'll make sure you're compensated for what the business is worth. But then his version... Uh, and then what the business is worth was different. So family member was taken care of okay, but never really got what they should have out of the business. And then the problem becomes then is, okay, well, let's say the business is valuated at that. Somebody gets a disability. Um, where's the money come from? Like, are you going to sell your pieces of the business? Um, the other nice thing about the buy sell is it gets family members out. Like you don't want... Do you want to be dealing with that guy's wife or not? Is she interested in the business? Who knows? But the idea is that the legal side, vastly important, but then being able to fund that without destroying your business at the same time is important. And we find that too in this business. Everyone, everyone can get around life insurance corporately because it's not that expensive. You can buy it. It's not, it's not a huge deal. The corporation pays for it. The disability is a hurdle for a lot because it's a lot more money simply because the chances of you becoming disabled are a lot higher than you you dying prematurely, statistically speaking anyway. So massive things, right? Like it's one thing to have an elaborate agreement, but like you're saying, like, where are you going to pony up the cash to pay for it? A lot of times life insurance makes sense. Now I'm biased. I, I happen to hold a life license within uh, Ontario and BC, so I I like to think I'm objective, but it's a good tool. Let's just because just because you're a lawyer doesn't mean selling as a will is as a devious thing, right? It's a it's an important thing. Hey, I mean, if we want to take a, a commercial break in this podcast and pitch both of our product lines, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> so here's. Here's the thing. Um, I was thinking of this because we actually had this happen. 
um, sole proprietor uh, passes away. Now, I guess not sole proprietor. He had a corporation, but he was the only guy. Him and his wife were the shareholders. Um, how could someone like that? So in this case, it was uh, he was in a profession that needed him or someone with the same qualification. So when we're talking about the same thing, disability or death, how can someone plan well? Like, let's say they don't have 10 shareholders to turn to and say, buy this. Um, is there a legal way to prepare for that that you could recommend as well? So there's there's two there's two main things we want to talk about. So we want to talk about the power of attorney for property and how it can be valuable in running a business, especially when you're someone who operates solo. Classic example are a lot of medical professional corporations. So a lot of optometrists or chiropractors or uh, dentists, they might just be the only the only person like they they're the only dentist in the dental office. And then they have a bunch of hygienists, a bunch of assistants and a receptionist and a treatment coordinator, and they run the show and they have a stroke. So what we frequently recommend, especially for professions, but even for a small to medium sized business, look at your spouse and ask yourself honestly, especially, especially if it's a licensed profession and they are not a member of that licensed profession, or it is a successful large complex business, will your spouse be able to figure out how to run this business if I have a stroke tomorrow? Right. Because if they can't, and if you have, let's say your office manager is very trusted and knows what they're doing, or your accountant is very trusted and knows what they're doing, or you're a dentist and the dentist across town is a colleague of yours and a very good friend, why not make a power of attorney specific to your corporation or your professional corporation that says this power of attorney for property only deals with the shares that I hold and the ownership that I have and the control that I have in this corporation and then name that person because for example if it's a professional corporation so a medical professional corporation or a legal professional corporation only someone who is licensed in that profession can run that professional corporation the moment right. that person dies or can't make decisions and there's no mechanism for them to make decisions by way of a power of attorney document held by another professional from that profession that thing's done it's now essentially a glorified holding company. It can no longer perform any of those professional services anymore. And we have a major problem. So for example, I'm a lawyer. I have a legal professional corporation. I should have a power of attorney of property in place just for my legal professional corporation. That names another lawyer that I trust. Because if I have a stroke tomorrow, somebody needs to run the firm. And that can't be my wife because my wife doesn't happen to be a lawyer. Um, same thing, you run a really successful car parts store, whatever and your husband or wife has no clue about what it is that you do every day, have no clue where your bank accounts are, don't understand any of your products or your sales, which they yeah. shouldn't be expected to. If you have an issue tomorrow and, and you have them named as your general power of attorney for property, that's great. They probably know how to pay your taxes and your hydro bill and your car payment. But if, if you know we've got six suppliers that aren't shipping and I don't know how to make payroll this week, then that business is gonna tank. Whereas if you had right. a trusted employee, or an accountant or somebody who you deal with who understands what you do every day, then why not put them in place to at least be able to make those decisions or at least put them joint with your spouse so that your spouse has the family connection and that person has the business knowledge to be like, all right, well, let's keep yep. running this thing along. Let's see if so-and-so recovers. If they don't, maybe we look for a buyer and we sell the business. Maybe we liquidate it. Let's see what we can do, right? So 
on that side, because this is this is something like I know in our industry, the uh, average financial advisor is 55. Um, everybody running a business thinks they're going to be running it forever. Um, disability and death are not things we anticipate or, or really want to think about. Um, so let's say the power of attorney is in place and and we'll we'll end on this. Um, it, if you're a, a solopreneur or you have a, you have a small business um, or you're in a business where just like what you're saying, you're professional, you have a license to do that thing. Everyone around you is your competition, right? Like the dentist down the road, your competition. So I, I think this is this is kind of a side topic, but something that a lot of businesses need to start doing is developing relationships with people who do the same thing they do, because really in a in a business like I mean, even a law office for crying out loud, a lot has to do with like, do I like the lawyer I'm dealing with? Um, a lot of it's got to be relationship based. So um, is there a legal way? I'm sure there I'm asking a question that has an obvious answer, but succession planning like so I find so I have my power of attorney set up, but I'm really I'm a dentist and I'm really good friends with dentists across town. Um, and we decide, hey, instead of like you dying and me screwing you and saying to all of your patients, come over here for free. Why don't we set up an agreement that would have me come buy you out or vice versa so that your widow or my widow or, or widower doesn't have to like watch me take all of the family value away? Is there a legal way to set that up? You absolutely could. So there's all sorts of structures you could put in place where you essentially you have a essentially a purchase agreement that says if any of the following things happen, the two of us agree that here's what we're going to do, right? We're going to, we're going to ensure because especially in small towns, this is important, right? Because if, if a whole practice goes dormant, yeah. a, the guy across the street might not have the capacity to take them all on right away yet. And then the biggest risk happens, which is now you have a patient mass that goes elsewhere. They go right. to the neighboring town or they go two towns over, they go three towns over. So and that's your business it, down. It's the very toilet. true. But then it's everybody's business down the drain. So you died and the guy across town who was your best friend and business colleague goes, well, crap, you know, if we could have just kept his office running, I could find an associate dentist and throw them in there for a year as we gradually right. transition this over. And I have a, an agreement that we signed that says, you know, we're going to pay X for, for per patient as we transition them into our practice and vice versa. Right. And I think it's always important. People need to remind, like, remind themselves Competition is great, but you also need to have respect for your peers and your colleagues, and you have to build those networks because you're going to need a shoulder to cry on, and you're going to need support every now and again, and things do go wrong. And when they go wrong, it makes everyone's life easier to know that there's a plan in place and that it will yeah. be okay, rather than we're going to run around like chickens with our heads cut off, and this business that used to be worth $2 million a year is now worth $0 a year and has a bunch of liabilities and debts. And nobody ever thought to put some sort of a succession plan in place to ensure that this really beautiful thing, i.e. a town that has a mass of a population of X number of people, can support X number of dental offices, has the ability to eat, seamlessly transition those patients back and forth. Because you'd be stupid. From a business perspective, you want the patients that are closest to you, that are already in your community. And if, sure. if you're smart enough to already talk to your partner across the street and say, hey, man, if you die or retire tomorrow, what's happening? And, yeah. you know, I'll tell you the same. Can we work out some sort of a deal that we have a referral 
amount that we're willing to pay each other if we say, you know, I want to hang it up tomorrow or I can't practice anymore because I have vision problems or some sort of a disability. It's a really useful thing to think about because it's really just part of your broader business strategy. It's how do I start my business? How do I make my business work? How do I grow my business? And then when do I get to a certain mass and a certain age and a certain timeline? What happens if I want to sell tomorrow? What happens if I want to retire? What happens if I get sick? What happens if I decide I want to spend a lot more time with my kids or I want to take up skydiving or I want to build motorcycles in my garage? Like there's, yep. it's all part of what you should be doing hopefully once a year, which is sitting down and thinking, all right, this is my life. This is my house. These are my assets. This is my health. This is my spouse's health. This is my children's health. What's our financial health look like? What is yeah. the what is the real like the, the real honest assessment? Is this business doing well? Is it doing poorly? Where's it going from here? Am I going to be done in 10 years or do I want to be done in 40 years? And that's if you don't think about that, if one of these events happens, A, it's going to be too late. And B, you're going to be so rushed and panicked that most likely you will make the bad decision and you'll end up right. losing a valuable asset that you could have very easily made some money off of, which is something that might not benefit you if you've happened to die or become disabled, but at least would make sure your loved ones are taken care of. Yeah. And I think for, I don't think there's a business owner that doesn't find a lot of value in what they've built, you know, like to think of all of the all of the extra time that's put in, all of the risk that's undertaken by a business owner to 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 risk the thing disappearing. Um, even from a legacy perspective, it's sad. It's like you want to see that business go on without you. And in some ways, like that is the ultimate success. You you ran a thing for X amount of years, you were able to transition it off, and the business was bigger than you wasn't just about you and it can run without you and there's more value in it there. So having all that stuff is set up is really important. Um, so just to recap, um, this has been a big conversation. Um, we talked about the importance of, of planning for children with disabilities inside of a will. We talked about the different mechanisms to protect the assets you, or the funds that you, you give to them to look after them. Um, Henson Trust was a big thing, RDSPs, um, and then also just some estate plan or some business planning stuff to make sure that you have agreements in place. Um, they cost a lot less more than the cost not having them. So if you are a business, uh, sit down with a lawyer and make sure you plan that out well because it costs too much not to. Um, Sebastian, anything else you want to add to that? I think we've covered a ton. I, I think that covers everything, you know, in a in a really concise way. I think the only, I think the only point I'd make on the business front, because it was the shorter part of our conversation, is I think to those of your listeners who own and run small to medium sized businesses, you're usually the first one in, the last one out every night. And when you sit in your office at night and the lights are off and everyone's gone home and all the chairs are up on the tables, do you want to be in a situation someday where there is the young up and comer who you shake their hand and they pay you money for you to go into a happy retirement or into the next phase of your life? Or do you want to have this valuable asset where because you didn't do the right planning one day, everybody gets fired and lights get turned off and everybody gets goes home and that's the end of that business in whatever sense that it was. And being diagnosed with a serious illness or being disabled, being in an accident, dying, all of these things if you don't plan for them, mean that this thing that you have spent an inordinate amount of time building up can vanish. 
And whether you do it out of greed, whether you do it out of ego, or whether you do it out of altruism because you like the challenge of running a business, all of those things are gone if you don't plan in advance for what happens if you're not there tomorrow, or if you can't be there tomorrow, or if you are never the same again as you were before. And, and I think you miss out on that if you don't think about these things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sebastian, thanks so much for joining us again. This has been a great conversation, very informative, and hopefully it helps uh, some families out and some people in the area of running businesses to just to plan better and to uh, hold on to their value by, by planning for the future in a meaningful way. So thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me on again. No problem. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, financial, or professional advice. The opinions expressed are those of the participants and are for informational purposes only and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Sterling Mutuals, Inc. Mutual funds and ETFs provided through Sterling Mutuals, Inc. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed, their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.